With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 257, which was the Ed Aids' free episode. Now, this episode, of course, didn't create a lot of questions. There was a lot of comments and a lot of people talking about how much they enjoyed the show. Uh, but we still have lots and lots of questions for the Melgar case. So even though this is follow-up 257, the primary focus of most of these questions is going to be on our season 6 case uh, as listeners have dug in deeper and found more details on the crime scene that we hadn't noticed before. And Mike's got a whole list of questions. Yep, let's get started. Okay, first we've got a little housekeeping to do. We've got some changes coming. Yeah, so there's a few things. Number one... We are, on October 1st, we're moving platforms, which shouldn't affect you guys at all, but we just want to give you a heads up because some things are going to sound a little bit different. Um, so on October 1st, we're moving our hosting platform from Audioboom over to Wondery. It's just a different podcast directory. It'll still show up in your iTunes feed or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you get your podcast, the same as it always has. But the differences you will notice is, one, the way that Wondery does their advertising um, they, they do like a dynamic insert where they pull ads out and pop new ones in. None of that matters to you. The only thing I want to warn you of, just so you're aware, because it's going to sound a little funny, is we have to do our music a little bit differently around the ads. You know, typically Shane Yoder, uh, who does all of our scoring, will kind of blend the music together and it'll flow right into the ads. Um, starting probably next week, you'll notice the music will fade down. There'll be just a quick little half a second of silence, and then it'll fade into the ad music. And same thing on the other end. Again, it's not a big deal, but just so you know, that's not Shane forgetting to how to do his job. It's just the way that we have to do the advertising uh, because of this new platform that we're going to be hosting the, the show on now. Uh, you'll also notice sometimes where that will happen and there will be no ad. The music will fade and it'll pop right back up and keep right going with the content. And that's because we need to put in, they're called ad markers, if anybody cares, <laughs> that we had to put those in throughout the episode in like three places so they can insert ads. Doesn't necessarily mean they're always going to insert ads. So just wanted to give you a little heads up about that. And also you may have to turn the volume up on your, whatever you're listening on your phone or your, or your computer because the, uh, their standard for uploading them is at a lower decibel than we typically use. We usually come in kind of hot when we put the episodes out. So you can always turn them down. 
Uh, with their format, they'd like to keep it a little bit lower, so you'll just have to turn it up a little bit. So those little differences uh, that probably none of you care about, maybe one of you does. But the bigger thing is we're considering making a big change in how we do these Friday follow-ups, at least for this season. So as, as I've gone back and Mike and I were reviewing our past episodes, we notice is every other word we say is, well, Liz said this, we'll ask Liz, I'll have to ask Liz about that, Liz told us this, according to Liz, and for those of you that don't remember, Liz Rose is the daughter of Jim and Sandy Melgar, and she's been very active in kind of helping us out to track things down, answer questions, and so what we're going to try today, and we'll, we'll be looking forward to your feedback about as far as if you like this or don't, as far as what we're going to do moving forward, but we have joining us on the phone Miss Liz Rose. Can you say hi, Liz? Hi. <laughs> She's been sitting there waiting patiently. <laughs> but uh, our plan is to have Liz just on the phone with me. So Mike will still be hosting, asking the questions. I'll be here to answer. But then Liz will also be on the phone with us to help chime in and answer any of these questions. Hopefully, you can get us closer to the truth a little bit faster and hopefully be you know entertaining as far as we can be entertaining with, with the kind of work that we do. And uh, so we're going to give it a try and let's let's just see how it goes. So you ready for your first question, Liz? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Well, so Mike, let's let's get going. All right. Our first question is from Stacy. Stacy says, "What stage is Sandy's appeal in?" All right. So Sandy's in, still in the direct appeal phase right now, and that's been kind of stalled a little bit due to the transcripts being created, and that's why like we're not seeing the Innocence Project of Texas or anybody like that jumping out on the case yet because they don't come in until after a direct appeal if it's not approved then uh, that's when organizations like IPTX will step in for the habeas work, the post-conviction work. Um, Liz, do you have anything to add to that? Is that I mean, uh, where are we at with the appeal? Do you know? Um, so they had to put it on pause for a little while because there were a lot of errors in the court transcript that the court reporter had to go back and fix. And because the transcript is 10 volumes long, it took longer than expected. You know I think it just started getting the corrections back. So I believe the case has been reinstated and they should be moving forward soon. Okay. So when we look, cause I know when we look on the, the clerk's website, it looks like there's like deadlines missed for, you know, the amount of time that you have to have to file certain motions for the, the motion for the new trial and the appeal, but that's, it's been kind of right. paused, right? Because of the, tr the transcripts. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. They have to, um, I think a bunch of, you know, the exhibits were mislabeled and uh, witnesses were attributed to the wrong side. So it made the appeal really confusing and they had to go back and fix all those errors. Okay. So that's where we're at with Sandy's appeal so far. It should be uh, that ball should start rolling again here pretty quickly. All right. Moving on. Haley says, did Sandy say the knife did for a fact belong to them or was it an assumption by the police because there was another Calvalon knife in the kitchen? That's a, a Liz question, because Liz, you told me a little bit about the knife that was in the kitchen that was had belonged to you and your ex-husband. So can you talk a little bit about the knives and what you know about the situation? So there was another Calphalon knife that was, it was similar, but um, that was one that we had received from Bed Bath & Beyond for, for registering for certain items on our wedding registry. What about the knife in the bathtub? Is Did you think that that belonged to your parents? We don't think so because when we were packing up the knife, um, when we were moving out of the house, none seemed to be missing. We're not sure. We don't think it was ours, 
but we can't be 100% sure. Okay. Next one's from Ruth. Have the police ever asked Sandy to explain any of the crime scene photos? For example, did she or Jim light the candle? Why was there a strawberry in the cream, etc.? Not just those two particularly, but things she could have explained away easily. No, the police never spoke to her after her initial interview. They never spoke to any of the family after that. So she never saw any of the crime scene photos or um, heard any of the any of the descriptions of the crime scene. I do know that my dad lit the candle. Which candle are we talking about? We, uh, I'm talking about the candle on the nightstand. Okay, uh, can we talk about that a little bit? Because you and I were discussing it the other day that, you know, it, it looked to me with the lid being in the bathroom and then the candle being lit on the nightstand next to the bed that it looks to me like like maybe your dad got out of the tub and took the candle and made it to the the nightstand over there after he got out of the tub. But you, you said you talked to your mom a little bit about that and you're not sure that's how it went down? Right. I believe it was lit in the bathroom, but it was moved to the nightstand. But I now I can't recall at what point that happened. Oh, okay. So as you and I talked about that earlier, uh, as far as the candle and your mom, I think you said your mom did say that your dad did in fact light the candle in, in the bathroom and he moved it there. But do you remember if it was before or after they got into the tub? Uh, yeah, she said that so my dad had lit the candle in the bathroom and before they had gotten into the tub and moved it over to the nightstand. Okay, so we at least know that, according to your mom, your dad did, in fact, light the candle. It did start in the bathroom, and then it did move out to the nightstand. Correct. Okay. Okay, and Brenna says, has the question of race ever been brought up? You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that Sandy is white and Jim is Guatemalan. Could there be any question of a racially motivated attack on Jim where Sandy was a bystander? To me, that's just, I mean, it's possible. It seems a little bit unlikely just because, I mean, they've been in that. How long do they live there, Liz? Like six years? Right, six years. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been together for 32 years. They've been married or they've been living in that house in that neighborhood for six years. So anytime we're looking at something like this, we're trying to look at what would, you know, what would be the trigger? What would trigger somebody to act on an issue like that at any time? And it's, it's just hard to, for me to wrap my brain around what could have been a possible trigger. Do, do you think that holds any weight, Liz? So my mom is half Mexican as well, so if there was a problem with my dad being Guatemalan, I imagine. I mean, unless they just didn't know that, but it's possible, but I don't think it's probable. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and Michael says, can you give a brief update of Ed's legal case for exoneration, even if it's just still waiting on various tests, etc.? 
And also before you answer that, Amy wonders if we can have an update on all the cases we're covering on the show. Yeah. So with Ed being released on parole, it hasn't affected the legal process at all. So Allison and her team have been, have been and are continuing to work towards exoneration. We haven't even filed a motion to go before the court, you know, re- requesting exoneration for actual innocence yet. Still gathering evidence, waiting on results. There's a lot of wheels turning in this case. And it just, it's kind of like just in the middle of all that happening, we get this great news and he gets to go home. And so he gets to continue to fight that battle now from home. But we're, it hasn't even stalled. I mean, other than, you know, a day off to go celebrate with Ed, it hasn't even stalled the process. We're still continuing to drive forward. I mean, mostly, I mean, when I say continuing, that's, that's Allison and her team working with the Smith County DA's office to, you know, figure out exactly what evidence we have, what results we have, what the results mean, and how she would word the motion where she would be claiming actual innocence. So that's still coming. We'll jump back to, as far as the rest of the cases, season one, Adnan Syed, his case is still, his his conviction has been vacated, so he is no longer convicted, but he's still in prison because then the state appealed that up to the next higher court who upheld the judge's ruling. They kind of flip-flopped the reasoning for it, but upheld the ruling, so the conviction is still vacated, and now that's been appealed up to the next highest court, and so now we're waiting on that ruling. So it could be maybe even up to, I don't even know, uh, Colin Miller's Twitter would be a great place to get updates on that. He's really good about keeping people up to date and explaining the process, but it could be another year before we get a ruling on that. But as of right now, his conviction is still vacated. It was overturned by a judge upheld by a higher court, and now it's in the hands of the next higher court. Uh, Then jumping past Ed in Season 3, Jesse Eldridge, the Conviction Integrity Unit, still has his case. Allison's still working on his case. They know they still have test results out. And as I've said a lot of times, I'm really in the dark in that case, and it's extremely frustrating for me, but it's it's just how it works. With the CIU involved, they are very much wanting to keep a tight little bubble around things between like them and and Allison and her team. They don't like to share with anyone else what's going on, but they're they're supposed to be still working on the case. There was there's DNA testing and some other testing that they're waiting on, and then also they are uh, there's some investigative angles I'm sure they're going to be taking and people they want to interview. I I only know from my perspective there were some people that I was going to interview, and I was told they've asked for you to not talk to anyone else because now they have investigators working on the case and they don't want to uh, have conflicting issues uh, with, you know, me knocking on somebody's doors and their investigators going the next day, which I understand and respect. And so I've backed off of it. But that, of course, has left me in the dark a little bit on the case. Season four, George Powell, we're still waiting on a ruling for his case. So it was about this time last summer, I think, when when he had his hearing down in Texas, George Powell was one convicted of aggravated robbery when Every single witness and the security cameras show a five foot eight man robbing these stores and six foot, what, six foot two George yeah. Powell that, that was, you know, towers over this guy was somehow convicted of it. And so that, that's just waiting on a judge's ruling. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what's taking so long, but hopefully that could be any day now. George is now back in. He's moved out of the county. He's back into TDCJ in, in a prison awaiting what's going to happen next. But hopefully we get some positive news uh, out of his case very soon. I don't want to forget about the other two Smith County cases. So you guys, as you guys know, with Kenny Snow, uh, his attorney, Susan Schoon, uh, who is one of our listeners that has taken his case pro bono, is still working on some angles. But as I said, it's Kenny's case is a sad case. It's, it is a very difficult proposition, given that even with the circumstances that we all know surround it, you know, that, that there was a confession and he pled guilty. 
Um, and we all know that, you know, it's a long story that it, and we all know that false confessions happen. Uh, I believe that's the case in, in Kenny's case. And the plea bargain was how we got to at eight. But it's, it's a it's a tough road to hoe. And with with Bill Cole falling out with the with the stroke, who was the oh, I think the only real strong possibility we have, you know, and, and the frustration in his case, too, was, of course, we had DNA. There was a hat with blood on it. There was blood from the floor. Uh, we had all that, and we tried to get it tested. The city of Tyler Police Department had illegally destroyed that evidence in 2001, or 2000, whatever, um, what year was it? I think it was 2001. Uh, yeah, 2001 sounds right. If not, I think it was 2002. It could have been something like that, uh, which is impressive that you have any idea, because that was before you even. No, we t- that came up, yeah, it was before me, but I, I remember we rehashed that just a couple months ago. Yeah. Uh, but there was a new law in Texas that came out that said that it's biological preservation. They could not destroy any biological evidence. And it was like three months after that that uh, Tyler PD destroyed all the evidence in his case. And also in Kerry Max Cook's case, uh, which is uh, one of the other or other Smith County cases. Now, his case also, uh, he's waiting on a ruling from the CCA. His conviction was vacated. And then they had a hearing on actual innocence. The judge's ruling on the actual innocence claim was denied, but in Texas, how that works is all both those rulings get shipped up to the Court of Criminal Appeals for approval of the judge's rulings. And so we're still waiting for the CCA, as far as I know, to rule on either one of those. Uh, and then, of course, the West Memphis 3 case, they're out on their Alfred plea. We're still working on that investigation behind the scenes, what's going on now, and we'll be coming back to their case after we are done with uh, Jim and Sandy's case. Uh, and that leads us to Sandy, who, as we mentioned, she's still in the very, very early stages, been just over one year since her conviction, and we're in the very early stages of her direct appeal. It's really impressive, a seven-minute summary of the last four years of your professional life. <laughs> right, and, and it's a, you can tell what Mike's professional life involves editing, because he was just watching the time tick by as I was <laughs> rambling on. <laughs> All right, and Shane says, if you have time, I'd like to know what dry rub y'all used on those ribs. I want to try it out. <laughs> well, you can't buy this kind of dry rub. Uh, that's Shane Yoder, right? Sounds, that's Shane Yoder. It's the music man, Shane Yoder. So Ed and I made the rub for the ribs. Um, I can give you a little Reader's Digest version. We used, um, uh, the base was like a 50-50 mix of brown sugar and salt. And then we had uh, garlic powder and onion powder. I think we put some cumin in there. Giving away all your secrets. Smoked paprika. Gosh, what else? I don't remember. But it's a bunch of stuff we put in there. And I couldn't even tell you how much because that was Ed's job. He was explaining to me what all the spices were and how much of everything to put in. But it was delicious. It was like sweet and spicy. <laughs> all right. This one's from Sam. It's kind of a long one, so bear with me. Sam says, in the opening episode of this season, you, Bob, presented a detailed narrative of the case. Details around Sandra and Jim's returning home that evening that has remained largely unchallenged and has guided the majority of discussions so far in this investigation. You have acknowledged that at that point in time, you did not have access to the full police files, court transcripts, and records, and had only very limited communication with Sandra. I am interested to hear why you were so convinced, at such an early stage of the investigation, and without access to the vast bulk of evidence, of the truthfulness of Sandra's story when the decision was made to use that narrative in framing the season's investigation. Many of the theories discussed use this narrative as a starting point, and it appears to be widely accepted, at least within the majority of the group, as fact. Even if the prosecution accepts certain elements of the narrative as fact, would it have been appropriate to revisit that via an investigation and analysis prior to setting the narrative? 
So basically, he wants to know, why did you present that narrative without any evidence? So the reason is that's the first episode of every season, if you go back, is not evidentiary whatsoever. The The first episode of every season is basically telling a story, framing a picture. Usually, it's depending on where we're at with the case, it's based on something. So in this case, it's based on Sandy's narrative of what happened. And then we go right back into the next episode, letting you hear Sandy's narrative of what happened in her police interview. And then we start presenting the prosecution side of the case. So that's not, if you go back to like the West Memphis 3 case in season five, we told a story. It's, it's really a story. Episode one is always kind of a storytelling episode, kind of based in reality as far as how things look with where we're at now. And then we start building and building and building. And then we start dissecting. And and so as far as that being the basis of people's narrative, it's just what we're trying to get to now is that's one hypothesis. And then we gave you Colleen Barnett's hypothesis. And then from that, and then, and, then, and then I've had some of my own, you've had some of yours. And then as we start to present actual facts and evidence, we test that evidence against all the different hypotheses. So the short answer is that episode is not evidentiary based. Think of it like an opening statement or a closing argument in trial. It's, it's, it's a narrative. And now we're going point by point by point through the evidence and trying to see where the evidence points us. So like, I I don't even, you know, I say we compare it to that kind of narrative, but really it's less than that. What we need to be doing is at this point is just focusing on the evidence and looking what the evidence is telling us. And now you said that 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 narrative has gone, or the, the listener here has said that that narrative has gone basically unchallenged in the previous episodes, but that's not what's happening. I mean, that's, to me, if if that's what you're getting, then I think it's a pretty good indicator that that narrative may be pretty damn close to what actually happened because I'm just giving you what I see on the crime scene. These are the the pieces of evidence we found. These are the photos that we're taking. This is how I interpret them. This is what, what it means. And if it if it tends to be looking more towards that than what Colleen Barnett told us, then that may be the direction we're going. But we're going to go wherever the evidence leads us. All right, Ashley says, I noticed in the photos of Jim's nightstand that on the phone there's a sticker with Constable Ron Hickman, Precinct 4, with his number on it. It seemed interesting that Jim would need a constable's number so readily available and could indicate he'd been having trouble with tenants or someone else, since constables typically serve eviction notices and are there for the actual lockouts. Has anyone spoke with Mr. Hickman about his interactions with Jim? Were the Malgars in any active or recent eviction proceedings with any of their tenants? Well, I was going to say, when I saw the card, my first thought was the same thing. I mean, I'm a landlord. Jim and Sandy were landlords. So the, having a relationship with someone who can, like they said, serve serve eviction notices uh, or anything like that is probably a good reason to to have that. But I don't Liz, do you know why that card was there? I have no idea. I didn't even notice that on the nightstand. But it's funny that an eviction is mentioned because, you know, I did kick over the bank accounts and... Um, a lot of the rental business, and one of the tenants was hadn't paid rent in about three months, and uh, I did end up speaking to him, and he kept promising he would pay, and then he just completely disappeared. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, they had started eviction proceedings, but I I hadn't heard anything about my dad con- contacting the constable. Okay, so that's good to know. Okay, this next one's from Alyssa. She has two questions. First. Did the defense have any medical experts testify about epilepsy at the trial to explain how a stressful event can trigger a seizure? Uh, I don't know the answer to that because I haven't seen the transcript yet. Liz, do you have any idea? I do know that my mom's neurologist was called 
I don't know what he said because I was sequestered for the trial. Okay, but they did have a medical expert in there to try to answer those questions at least. Yeah, they did. Okay. Okay, your second question is, did Sandy see the white shirt and knife that were in the tub and confirm whether or not they were hers? So we already talked a little bit about the knife. Uh, Liz, what do you know about the shirt? I believe she was shown photos of it, but I don't think we came up with a conclusive answer. I mean, she had a closet full of clothing, so I, I'm not sure that we we know for sure whether it was hers or not. Yeah, so I'm really curious about the the size to me is 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 more relevant. You told me that your mom typically wore larges and you had a shirt of hers that was a large and the shirt that was in the tub was a medium. But yeah, my mom, my mom, you know, she was a small woman, but she had um, a larger bust. So she was, she would wear larges more often than not. But I mean, with women's clothing, depending on the brand and the style, the size might vary. So I have a couple of her shirts here. They're both larges, but I can't say that she would have never worn a medium because that's not how women's clothing works. You just as we're talking about this, I'm just thinking like it would have been so nice if they did like an OJ thing at trial. You know what I mean? Like, have, <laughs> like right, you know, like literally, like have her try on the shirt. Of course, I mean it could backfire if it did fit her. Um, I mean, if it fits her, it doesn't mean that it was hers. But it would be interesting to see if they tried to put it on and and it just didn't fit. And then they must have quit. <laughs> like Johnny Cochran said. Yeah, it would have been better if we had some sort of you know, definitive proof as to whether it fit or not. But yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have that luxury at trial. This next one's from Candy. Was her lupus ever described in detail? I know that's maybe for a later date, but having lupus myself, I just can't imagine having the strength, energy, or memory to do all that they said she did. I barely can make it through each day, but definitely can't without a detailed list. So that that's definitely a, a Liz question. Can can you kind of explain? You obviously were close to your mother. You lived with your parents for a while, you, and you've seen how lupus affected her. So can you just describe to us how that condition affected your mother from your perspective? You know, the lupus is something that has ups and downs. But for the most part, my mom was usually down. She's had to have two rounds of, you know, IV chemotherapy to try and get to a better place to lower her immune system. You know, she would she had rheumatoid arthritis. She had the bilateral hip replacement. She had four hip surgeries. And she had a terrible memory because of the lupus and, and the seizures. You know, she had a hard time doing things, opening things, standing up, getting dressed. You know, it, it affected her in her day-to-day activities. So the the combination of all of the different ailments that she had just really sounds like it really made her physically have a hard time doing a lot of things. But the lupus affects other. And I always thought like the seizures had a, had an effect on the memory and things like that, which I know they do. Based on the question that we got here and, and your response, d- does lupus by itself affect your memory and issues like that? Well, I have lupus too, so yeah, it definitely does. There are days where I can't remember. Uh, whether we're in 2017 or 2018, or, you know, my zip code. There are just days where I can't remember things that I use on a daily basis. And that's something they call this fog or brain fog. And, you know, it's just one day to the next. One day you might not remember, and the next day you're absolutely fine. All right. This next one's from Jennifer. When Marissa tried to get in touch with the Melgars to let them know that they were on their way, 
Was it Jim's cell phone that she contacted? Was that message retrieved and documented? Yeah, so Marissa did text Jim. Obviously, it wasn't responded to. And I believe that the police did take all the phones and go through them in detail. Uh, as a matter of fact, Liz, that was one of the questions we had from last week we were going to address. Were both phones recovered from the crime scene? Yes. Both of them were. Okay. Do you remember where your dad's was? I remember there was, or, or mom's, whoever it was, there was one on the bed. Where was the other one? So, yeah, both um, both phones were recovered. My dad had, he had a BlackBerry, and my mom had the Samsung Galaxy. Okay. Do you remember where they found the, the BlackBerry? Was it in his pants pocket? Yeah, it was on the nightstand in the case. Oh, it was in that leather case on the nightstand? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And then the police took both of those, and they went through them pretty thoroughly, didn't they? Yeah, they went through the messengers, the, the I mean, all, the entire memory was gone through, and, and their laptops as well. Okay. This next one's from Nicole. She writes, on the Friday follow-up, Bob mentioned that the candle wax was fully melted. Now she's talking about the candle on the nightstand. She says, but there's another picture where the wax is only partially melted, but the candle is still lit. How could this be explained? Really good question, and uh, listener Don McElhaney, who does it again, he's he, he, Don has an attention for detail that's that's pretty incredible. But yeah, so this was caught that in one photo, the candle on the nightstand, the, the wick is lit, and the candle is completely liquefied. And then there's another one where the candle's still lit, but it's not liquefied. It looks solid again. And so then it made us think, well, maybe it hadn't melted all the way in the first one, which is tr- would be troubling. But then uh, a, f- a few listeners, gosh, I don't want to say names, I'm going I'm to get them wrong or forget them. But some other listeners found, I know John Hayes was one who mentioned that you can get the, I think they call it epics data off of the photos, the digital photos that have actual timestamps and stuff on them when they were taken. And then maybe, gosh, Adam, maybe? If, you're, if your name's not Adam, sorry. If it is, thanks, Adam. That went through and did pull them out and find them. And so we have timestamps for all those photos. Uh, and that would be a great project if somebody wants to work on it, if they can get a, some some sort of a list that's easy to follow as far as the timestamps or the order of the photos taken. Uh, that would be awesome. But in any case, what we did find out, what Don found out, was that the picture of the candle with the wax completely melted and liquefied was taken at 9.56 p.m. So that's shortly, not shortly after they got there, but it's about the time they started the the crime scene investigation. At, at that time, Sandy was just getting started on her police interrogation back at the station. The photo of the candle lit, but the wax solidified was taken at 1.13 a.m., which is, so so three and a half hours later, and the wax isn't liquefied anymore. It's solid, but it's still lit. And so it just goes back to what we were talking about last week. It, it's extremely troubling that it wasn't documented, or, but like that one is a big one because what it looks like to me, and I think most listeners that were on that thread, is that the photo was taken. At some point, the candle was blown out, and then they relit the candle to take a picture, which is again, it's extremely troubling. Why would they relight the candle? I just I don't know what that means. But it was a great catch by everyone involved in this and and looking at the timestamps so we get, we know because again, it would be very troubling if the candle wax wasn't melted yet. At you know at nine o'clock when or when Sandy was found, um, but it was melted later. That would mean it was lit very recently. But we don't we know that the opposite is true. It was completely liquefied when Jim was found, and when the police came in and started their investigation, it was three and a half hours later when it had had resolidified. 
And you mentioned Don. Speaking of Don, he's done it again with the bathtub. He noticed in one of the crime scene photos that there was an open bottle of bubble bath, and in the small recess of the tub, there's bubble bath residue visible. Yeah, another one where, because you know, there was one of the jurors, I think it was just one of them that was on that Dateline episode, Liz. I think you saw that, right? The YouTube clip where the jurors were talking. Yeah. You know, and he said, I looked at that tub and I looked at those pictures and it doesn't look like anyone was in that tub. And I'm like, what is a tub? It's, it's a tub with water in it and there's drinks around it. And what do you mean it doesn't look like there's anyone in it? Uh, but, you know, we, we talked about last week that there was um, the spot up on the edge of the tub where it looked like somebody had sat or put an arm or you could see like the residue where bubbles had gone off somebody. But yeah, then then Don looked and of course sitting right there is and it's actually well the funny part was for me that it's actually Mr. Bubble, like the stuff we used when I was a kid. Huh. The bottle of bubble bath. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> so they used Mr. Bubble and then but you can see exactly what Don's saying. There's still a little bit of water and some bubble residue on that little that little recess kind of in the middle of the tub, which again is congruent with what your mother said that they had. They were in the jacuzzi tub. And they had bubbles and all this stuff. And again, it, it fits with that. And it does not fit with the juror who said that, to me, that says it looks like no one was in the tub. I don't know what they would base that off of. I think he said there was no um, soap scum running around the tub. Right. And you know what? And that was a discussion that was that I was involved a little bit on the fan page. Because somebody said the same thing. It would leave soap scum ring. But in my opinion, so they were going out for their big anniversary dinner. I would, and I don't know, you might be able to answer your parents' habits, but I know she said your dad was working out in the yard and stuff all day. I would assume that they would shower and clean up before they went out to dinner. And so this this bath that they were taking wasn't to clean themselves. They were just having a nice romantic soak in the tub. And But you wouldn't expect them to be real dirty and greasy because they had probably just showered a couple hours before, before they went out. I mean, I don't know if that's... I don't know your parents' hygiene. I don't know if you know if you know either. Yeah, but... <laughs> Be correct to assume that. Right. I think with most people they would shower. So, <laughs> but yeah. So that yeah, going back to what that juror said, like, how did this land with them? Because there's no there's no residue or grease on the tub. It's like, well, you're a couple of clean people are in the tub. So it, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect it. I guess is what I'm saying. This one's from Sarah. Can you clarify if it was known that the wall hanging leaning against the ironing board in the guest bedroom was previously leaning against the armoire? What intruder would remove it and take care to relean it? They'd just toss it. So, uh, and I think Liz has the answer to what that actually is. I'll let her get to it in a second. Uh, but as far as it, it leaning, I don't see when I look at that crime scene photo, someone carefully leaning it. Uh, and, and no, there's no way to confirm that it was actually against the armoire. But I, I can't imagine when there's a perfectly good straight up solid surface that it could be sitting against, leaning against, where the face of it could be displayed, that instead of doing that, they would normally keep it tilted halfway on its side at a 45 degree angle, leaning against an ironing board. So and it, it just, you know, when we're kind of projecting, like, how did, and that's what we do with the whole crime scene. So how did that get there? Does it belong there? How would it move there? To me, my hypothesis would be that it was probably leaning against the armoire. They wanted to open the doors. And so they had to move that out of the way. But it's just it's just like up against the ironing board. I mean, it, we don't know if it was gently set there or if it was just flopped back and, and hit it. I mean, it, it didn't need to move far away. It's just the top of it was covering the door. So it just needed to just tilt back. So, I mean, that it didn't have to be moved with any care. And as far as it being displayed, Liz, do you want to explain to everybody what that was that I said looked like kind of like a tabletop? 
it was part of a table that I had painted for my mom. It was just supposed to be some kind of like decorative side table. But yeah, it had been leaning against the armoire. I put it in that room when I had visited the month before. And she had wanted to, you know, just put it out for decoration at some point. I guess she just never got around to that. So it was it was a, it was something that you had painted for her. Right. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Sarah says, what type of seizures does Sandy have? I work with people with epilepsy and management of seizures can vary based on type. So I guess for me, the question would be, Liz, as far as what type of seizures, did she have like grand mal seizures or were they non-epileptic seizures? I don't know they even know what that means. I mean, what kind of seizures did your mom have? Um, no, she had epilepsy and so she had grand mal seizures. Also, listener Sam Carroll posted a video where he demonstrated where someone could tie themselves up in the same way that Sandy was bound. Bob, did you get a chance to take a look at that video? I did, and there's a, there's a few things with it, and I appreciate the effort. And, and what he did was he showed a way that you could tie yourself up uh, in the way that Sandy was, sort of, which, again, which was arms parallel to each other behind her back in the way both Herman and Maria described that to me. The bindings were wrapped around her forearms multiple times. The way both of them kind of traced it on my arm was that they, they looped one direction like from elbow down to the wrist, and then looped back over itself to the other direction and then tied at one end. And so what Sam was able to do was recreate a scenario where your arms are, in fact, tied behind your back. Now, he looked like he was a healthy young guy in good shape. I physically can't do it, and that's partially just because I have, I have, I'm old and I have, I have pretty wide shoulders. It's hard for me to get him back there, but I've also had shoulder surgeries and both shoulders. So I just, I can't even make my arms do that, but he was able to do it. So, so there's part of the issue. He's, he's young, he's in shape uh, and he can actually physically get his arms back like that. Whereas, you know, Sandy was um, arthritic and had the lupus um, and all these other issues. But then the other thing was the way he had it tied uh, the, the way that Sam had it tied in his video is not the way Sam in order to do it. He had to loop it around his wrists and then up over his arm. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a really well thought out process, but at the end of the day, there was ties around the wrist. There was ties, but there was uh, bindings between the arms that went like around one arm before they went around both arms. And that's just not how Sandy was tied. I mean, she was tied like if both arms started together and looped around one way and then looped back around the other so it just it, it it has the appearance of the arms are in the same position and there's a binding over them, but it's not the same way that Sandy was tied up, according to the family that found her. But and, and keep in mind when we say the family that found her, again, this is because there were some people that were questioning. Well, maybe they don't remember, or, or you know, could they be 
lying for her. This is Jim's brother. It's not Sandy's brother. It's Jim's brother that found Sandy and Jim and and started the untying the the knot. So, and then the last question is after watching uh, Sam's video and watch him go through this, he did it twice with a couple different materials. After watching him, my thought was, why? Like, if 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 your intention is to, like like how how in detail do you have to get in order to want to stage a crime scene to make it look like you were tied up with your hands behind your back? Like, who would think to, especially a fifty three year old arthritic woman, to think that I want to tie myself up in that way, the most the most difficult way possible, even if it is possible. And and again, based on the way Sam did it, that's not it's not possible because she hadn't there was no loops between the two arms. They all went around them. But even if it was the way he did it, why would you go through that much effort when you could do what Colleen Barnett suggested, which was basically make a couple of loops, put your arms behind your back and just twist your your wrist around it a little bit and your arms are tied back there? Because if anybody watches Sam's video, it takes some time and some difficulty to get into that position. And then once you're in it, you're stuck there. And she has no idea when anyone is coming over, when anybody, if anyone's coming over, how long she'll be there. So why would someone go through that much effort to put themselves in that difficult of a position? And I'm still not convinced it's even possible. I haven't seen anybody able to uh, complete that in a way that it was the same way that she was bound. I think it's also important to point out, though, that at the trial, you know, everybody... The investigators, the crime scene, at the crime scene guy, Maurice, he, they were all using, um, I guess, like the record that they had, they had made in order to be able to refer back to it when they were being asked questions. And they asked my uncle, you know, did you have to go back and review the record? And he said, no, I didn't have to. This is something that I'm never going to forget. And I just felt like people questioned his account of what happened. But I feel like every time he talks about it, he continues to relive it. Right. I mean, it is an extremely traumatic event for him. When I talked to him, uh, because we spoke before we did the interview, because when I got to the house, Marissa wasn't there yet to translate. And so, you know, we're doing the thing where you stand there awkwardly in the living room, fiddle with our equipment. Uh, and, and then uh, Marissa's husband, Gerson, was there. Uh, so he could translate a little for us. And, you know, they were asking, you know, what kind of questions are we going to ask? And I said, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, I'm just going to have you give some the details that the police never asked. Like, and I said, I said, for example, like how Sandy was bound, things like this. And and right away, Herman started showing me it was, you know, like this. And he, he he motioned to his arms parallel like that, that, you know, they were, they were like this. And then, and then Maria was kind of confirming that. So it was, that was the first I had heard that. So when, when they, when I saw that, I, of course I, I didn't get any further into it because I wanted to wait until we were recording for the interview. But I was kind of shocked to see because as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Well, how would someone do that? How was that even even possible?" But yeah, but but his back to your point, his recollection was firm. There was no question. I've seen people like I think it was this, and I'm trying to remember. He there's no uncertainty with Herman or Maria whatsoever. The very clear. It was right. like this. Her arms were like this. The bindings were like this. I cut. I mean, he was motioning with me with his fingers, like I cut, cut, cut. And I still couldn't get it off, and I still couldn't pull her arms apart. That's when he handed it over to Maria, because I think he wanted to go look for Jim, and also, he's got that bad arm, and I think he was hoping maybe she would have better luck with it. Right. Okay, Amy wants to know, which of our inmates are on JPay? 
On J-Pay, let me think. Let me just go back. Same thing we did earlier, back to our seasons. Anand Syed, I don't think is. Uh, I don't think Maryland does J-Pay because I think I've tried to use that before with him. But check. I mean, if you go to jpay.com, the letter J-P-A-Y.com, create an account, you can search for inmates by there. And we have all our TDCJ numbers or their their prison numbers, inmate numbers up on our website. But, of course, Sandy is on J-Pay. Uh, Jesse Eldridge is on J-Pay. George Powell is on J-Pay. So, yeah, so we got Jesse, Sandy, and George are all three on J-Pay. Of course, Ed is not because Ed is home now. And uh, and the same thing with West Memphis 3. They're out and home already. And lastly, episode 257 seems to be an all-time favorite. It didn't really generate much questions, but we got a lot of love from everybody, and we want to thank everyone. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for all the kind words on all forms of social media. I mean, that episode was, it was, Mike and I talked all week, that was a lot of fun to produce as far as the, you know, I, I really enjoyed writing it. You know, my conversation with Ed was amazing, and and Mike with the editing process, and Shane said the same thing once it got passed with him, that it was just, it was a fun, it was a really fun episode to work on, and and really uplifting, and, and I hope that it was rewarding for everyone to kind of hear you know, an end result of the work that we've all been doing for so long. You know, we had a lot more work to do, but really appreciate all the kind words. Uh, and thank you guys so much for everything you've done to get us to this point. It was it was a lot of fun for us. And I think with that, so you said that was it, right? That's it. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and wrap things up then. Uh, Liz, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to join us all the way from California. Hopefully we can, we can convince you to come back and go through this again next week. Yeah, anytime. I appreciate you talking to me. All right, we'll see you next week, guys. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, 
And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Which candle Sorry, are you talking about? Which candle are you talking about? Hang on, let me get that in a little cleaner. The candle that was Hang on the nightstand? Hold, whoa, whoa, hold up. <laughs> let, me, let me ask that question a little cleaner so we're not on top of each other. Which candle oh, are okay. you... <laughs> Here we go. Hang on. Which candle are we talking about? Are you asking me? Yeah, I just want... We were talking over each other, yeah. so I just tried to say it cleaner. <laughs> okay, sorry. You like sweet and spicy, Liz? Yeah. <laughs> Just making sure you were still there. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say that was that's me, you're sweet and spicy? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, proceed, Mike. <laughs> we're having fun, dude. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know we're having fun. <laughs> Yeah, I was. That was your chance to shine, Liz, for you to answer something. Be like, no, yes, this was here for this reason, and you blew it because you didn't know. I know. (laughs) And then this one, her third point, you might not want to. My good OJ joke. I'm gonna leave it. It was kind of funny. All right, all right. It was funnier that it fell flat, and she she just kept talking like I didn't even say it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. (laughs) Sorry, I'm used to dealing with my dad. I'm just like, keep talking. Pretend it didn't happen. (laughs) I'm leaving all that in, Bob. That's fine. That's fine. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.